this tune is one of the definitive songs of the late 80s. It was on the first album I ever bought, The Greatest Hits of 1988, double LP, and it catapulted Yaz and the Plastic Population to the top of the charts around the world. I'm so grateful she's taken the time to chat with me today to reminisce and talk about her life. After that thing she did, please welcome Yaz. Yes, hello. Hello. So good to be with you, Jeffy. Or rather, hola. Yes, como esta? Ay, que guay. Habla español. No me diga. I won't speak in Spanish. I'll lose half my audience. But that's right. That's right. I'm in Spain. And it's a beautiful day. I'm sorry. Um, it's those beautiful, crisp, kind of blue sky days. I was going to ask, so yeah, you, you now live in Spain. You've been there for... Um, I guess it's been just a bit more than a decade now that you've been there? Oh, more than that. Two decades, actually. Two decades? Wow. Yeah. I came after finishing my contract, uh, my recording contract agreements. I made that decision to come over to Spain through love as well, through affairs of the heart. Um, but I would I've never looked back. I've absolutely fallen in love with all of Spain, really and managed to settle and be creative and enjoy it all and have no sort of regrets, which is nice. Sometimes we make life decisions and sometimes we have big regrets and sometimes we don't. Um, so this is one of those, which is great. <laughs> it's, uh, it's southern Spain you live in, isn't it? Yes, I'm in Andalusia. So if, if, so if you follow the top of Spain in the centre all the way down to the bottom... Um, on the coast, you'll find me somewhere just tucked a little bit in the mountains there. But on the coast, I live on the coast. So I have a friend who also moved from London to southern Spain about a decade ago. And he he relishes in torturing me with how his winters are 20 degrees Celsius. And he's... So sorry. He's just had a siesta or he's just off to the beach for an afternoon stroll. Often. How, how have you adapted to Spanish life? And do you also torture people back home? I do all the time. Yes, of course I do. And I have adapted well because I like to walk. I like to be outside. And um, it does afford you that living in the South because of the weather is somewhat better than the UK especially in the winter winter seasons it's not it does get cold of course it gets cold I have you need blankets and heaters it's not um, and also I'm I'm a worker so um I think some people have a, a suspect image about Spanish life often um but you you know you have to work you pay your bills and you it, that there's no difference in that wherever you are I think except that there is this healthy outdoor living attitude um, which really shifts everything I think um, in the in the way that you make life choices mm. in the end yeah you see you're more sociable you see more people you invite friends over um, very very different I, I wouldn't change it really I wouldn't want to change it at the moment anyway hopefully I won't have to <laughs> okay well while you're you're Sunning it up in Spain and it's miserable back here in England. Uh, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Let's take it back to the beginning. How did a shy under 19s volleyball player for England end up being a pop star? <laughs> ah, I did your homework. <laughs> 
Um, how did that happen? Well, um, I was was a very shy child and I certainly wasn't really an academic. Um, and I think I'm much more DNA'd up to be in the creative. So I ended up sort of hanging out in uh, dance places, learning to dance and tap and do jazz and all those things. And you're very much kind of, embodied then or embedded with like-minded people creatives Mm. who end up in in bands and so that's how I kind of first met this place and this space where I felt more comfortable about myself I think and then um, I began to buy loads of records um, and got really heavily into getting, you know, first editions of this and first editions of that. And then I began to work in a club in London, Soho, called uh, Billy's. And that was really the start of me meeting some of the heads of um, the industry people and other music artists and other musicians, um, DJs and getting connected and getting hooked up with them and finally finding myself in a band um, uh, as a keyboard player, which is quite hilarious because my level of playing was dire, which obviously I was relegated very quickly out of that to become the backing singer in the band, <laughs> which I was awful at as well. But I found, um, I just found something of myself that I felt comfortable with and really enjoyed being actually behind the scene and adding in this that layer of voice and um, in music and so I started taking loads of lessons and classes uh, in singing and got better because you do when you practice and then really just went into another band and into another band and that typical you know artist progression until we found ourselves with the record deal which was interesting and learning curving and we went out started doing the tours you know the local area gigs and clubs up and down the country and learning my craft more and more I guess and then that band folded and that's that's when I decided that I think okay I'm going to take a step to being a solo artist Hmm. and went to look for some management some real management so you're quite enterprising though because I know you were um you were modeling to to pay for studio time and you you found out yourself who Wham's management was and approached them Mm -hmm. yourself and said you know come on take me on and they did you got to have balls to do that that's right that's right I didn't think of it that way at the time I guess I was I was so impressed with Wham and what they were doing I guess and uh, their vibe. There was a vibe that was happening around those those years, and I just thought, I wonder who's who's looking after them. I'd had such dodgy management up to there, and I thought, okay, well, they've got serious management. Let me find out what stable they're in, and I just, yeah, I just went for it. Um, I was actually in a. Uh, there was three of us in a group at the time, and we went to a maiden appointment. We went to see them, and they liked us. They liked what we were doing, and then the band folded, and they said, well. We'll take you on as a solo artist. And that's when I met, yeah, Jazz and Simon Napier Bell and started to be enfolded in that that kind of stable of real creative artistry and meet with some really great levels of comp- composition and writers. And again, just building, I think, you know, yourself as an artist. Mm. 
iron. There's, there's an expression, iron sharpens iron, and I think it's great to be around people who are um, passionate about what they do, uh, striving to, to do good at what they do, get better and, and improve. Um, and that, that rubs up on you, I think. And, and that was the place where that, that really began happening for me. So we first heard your vocals on Cold Cuts, Doctor in the House, and it was an exciting time for music then, wasn't it? Because house music was just starting to emerge. It was so exciting. House music, do you know, house got its name actually from a, a warehouse in Chicago. So house music really originated in the States and was coming out of the streets of Chicago through DJs and this new genre and style of music that they were they were kind of taking the the original disco sound and then coupling it with this kind of techno and moogs and synths that was happening at that time. And the explosion was coming out of this club called The Warehouse and it crossed over to, to London and particularly through the kind of cream of London's club um, land and all their presenters and particularly Kiss FM. Mm. Kiss FM was this really hot, trendy, um, cool, you know, radio station with Cole Cut, who were on Norman J, Tim West with Jazzy B, you know, from Soul to Soul, Danny Rampling, gosh, there were so many. And they were the ones that really kind of exploded um, house music on the airwaves and then onto the dance floors. They really dominated that get that kind of genre getting then into the commercial market, I think. Very powerful radio. Yeah? <laughs> Good radio. <laughs> the, the tell me about the decision to release The Only Way Is Up as your debut solo song, because for anyone unaware, it was a cover of a Northern Soul track by Otis Clay. That's right. But it's quite different in arrangement to what you released. Really different, Genevieve. <laughs> so... Talking about, you know, Kiss FM DJs, once we'd had that hit with Doctor in the House, which again was a nod to DJs, um, we were then kind of swept up by Big Life, who I was signed to at the time, um, into, okay, the, the, there's a potential to have, you know, a successful, possibly successful album mm. here. And so we ended up in a studio with writers, great writers, and one of the DJs from Kiss FM, Dr. Bob Jones, he sent over the only ways up and with a note saying, hi, as you know, this is Bob and I don't know if, you, if you've heard this track, but I think it could be a really good track for you, for your, for your new album. Have a listen, play it to the boys and so on. And I was working with Cold Cut at the time and uh, various other people. And I heard it and I just thought, I just said, there's no way I can do that song. It's, you know, it's sung by this gorgeous American soul, throaty vocalist, um, Otis Clay, and, uh, and was half the tempo that we were doing it as well. And so I didn't really see myself doing it, but the boys, Cold Cut, said, no, okay, well, let's just kick this around for a couple of days. Leave it, give it to us. We're going to, let's house it and change the BPM and, and see what we come up with. And so they made the arrangements, uh, uh, you know, produced the arrangements on the track and just played it to me. And I said, this is, this is great. This is, 
okay, I can get my head around this. And we just went in the, tr- the studio and a few hours later, I think, we had cut, you know, a rough of the vocal and how it was going to go. And, you know, it was just, there was two things about that song to me that I think created its success. One was the timing of its release and the other was the track. I think it was, you know, a beautifully arranged three and a half minute pop song with this amazing Sharon Red trumpet sample at the beginning of it, which is, you know, trumpets call people to attention. Mm. Something's happening here. And then they put that right on the front and of course in all the choruses and stuff. So, um, and then they coupled that with obviously what was currently um, the best sort of synth bass driving, just as driving bass pulse, um, which captured that same energy and that coupled with the lyric, um, just really, it just lifted the track to this place where you could not be kind of touched or infected by by the kind of effervescentness of it. And the other thing I thought when I look back, I think, is the timing. You know, it was a difficult time in the UK. There was, we were coming out of, you know, a lot of rage in the 80s. Mm. And uh, we had a lot of a political upheaval, Thatcherism, people were losing homes, you know, uh, they were dealing with racism. Um, so there was there was a culture there of kind of uh, down, people were felt down. And I think sometimes in the history of music, songs come along and they meet the culture. They meet the moment, let's say. And I do think that The Only Ways Up is one of those songs where People needed that kind of hope and that energy and look, it's going to be all right and we'd be broken down, but you just hold on. I'm with you. You know, I'm this, I'm, I see you, I'm for you. And then we, we made this very uplifting uh, video, you know, people were really, I, I think people were just really touched um, in a place that they needed to be touched because they were looking for some inspiration and hope. And music does that culturally. It just does that. Well, on the lyrics, um, yeah, you, you had some banging tunes, as we would say back in the day. Yeah. But, um, but at the time, I guess because I was eight or nine years old, I didn't realise how much political and social commentary were in your lyrics. Because in yes. Where Has All the Love Gone, you sang Get Rid of the Ghetto, Stand Up for Your yes. Love Rights has been embraced by the LGBTQ plus community, Got to Share, I think you wrote about apartheid. Um, you know, and it, Yes, that's right. And the only way is up is, is about poverty, as yes, you just is. said. Yeah. Um, was it difficult to convince the powers that be to record those songs? Because although it was being done in hip hop, I can imagine in a mainstream pop market here, there could have been some, hmm, not sure, you need to kind of stay middle of the road. Yeah. But this was a time of Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan, right? It's at 88, the same year. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Everything's fabulous and wonderful and there's no messages there. Well, I, I think by that, by the time I'd created that first album, Genevieve, my management and record company knew that I was a messaged woman, if you like, that my history and growing up and kind of dealing with the, the social um, discrimination and racism issues that I'd gone through had created um, the songs that I'd written. And I think most artists, you'll find that's true. The first album is always um, the voice of growing up and 
Um, so not really. You know, I was in an, uh, an indie label. I think perhaps if I'd been with a bigger, bigger label, there may have been uh, discussions. But I think also, like as you mentioned, coupled with putting it with what was current and topical and, you know, going on, I think it worked for them easier, let's say. What was more difficult, but most of the arguments that I would have would be about imagery, um, to be honest. I was not going to be the push-up bra, you know, lingerie-type artist, um, you know. So we had a lot of discussions with stylists coming in and, and literally holding up something that looked like a lingerie department. And I said, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. This message and that outfit, you really have not got who I am at all. So let's talk fashion then, because you were very much a double <laughs> denim wearer with lots of badges, oh dear. embellishments, rara skirts, crop jackets and tops, oh which my. are funny enough, fucking fashion now. Um, Gosh, yeah. But, but did you have much involvement in your styling? Because you did actually do a bit of styling for George Michael and yeah. Wham before you hit the charts. Yeah. Let me apologise now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for some of that stuff. I did think I was the bee's knees. I confess. Um... I'm a creative. I've always been into fashion and style to some degree. And remember then, you know, artists were, they had albums. So you had album covers to be creative about as well. It's so different now with CDs and not even CDs anymore, really. So I was pouring all that creative energy in trying to find myself, trying to find my identity and how I looked and in how I expressed myself in songs and yeah, I'd had because of the connection to uh, the same having the same management. I had the opportunity um, to work alongside Wham for a little while with George, just on a small level, in choosing some outfits and some ideas um, with him. Um, because Jazz had said, you know, you're you're into style, you know, you chat with George, and so yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I did enjoy it. I I, I enjoyed trying to find individualness and uniqueness because I think we are all created uniquely and and therefore we will always bear some of that um, in the way we dress, in the way we talk, you know, in everything that we do. Um, and then, of course, becoming a Christian, it made more sense as well because we are created in the image um, of God and I think that's a very beautiful, glorious um, and even sacred thing. So I love to be around people. I love people being themselves. I get frustrated when people feel they have to fit into certain categories because when I was growing up, that was the box that I was trying to be forced into um, as kind of a mixed ethnic um, first-generation child. And these are your limitations and these are your expectations from others. So I guess there's a part of me that always wants to speak out against that and and give people wings as well. Yeah. Um, sorry if this is a dumb question, but who were the plastic population? Oh, of course. Okay, so that's that was definitely like a four in the morning idea, like you do. <laughs> um, but yeah, being DJs, the boys said, look, okay, plastic is vinyl. Okay. And the population would be the buying public, as it were. Ah. So the buying public, hopefully buying our vinyl anyway. Um, that's all it was, as, as simple as that. But it's really cool. I mean, at the time, it seemed 
<laughs> good idea. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it just established that I wasn't a solo artist for them. It meant that, you know, we could add in other people if we wanted, featuring so-and-so, featuring so-and-so. Yeah. You know. So and then you appeared on Wogan uh, performing the, the Only Way It's Up to, I think, it's like 15 million homes. And almost overnight, it propelled you to number one for five weeks. So when you're suddenly on top of the pops and Terence Trent Darby is sending you bouquets of flowers mm. to say congratulations, it must mm. have been a whirlwind that just seemed unreal. It was extraordinary. Fast and furious, as they say. Just such an unknown area as well to me, fame. It's so demanding of, for attention and you so easy to get swept up in trying to fit into... Um, meet that expectation and the demands of fans um, and all the chart positions that are necessary to sustain where you've got to to be and all those sorts of influences. I found that um, quite overwhelming. But on the other hand, I was given such opportunity to meet some of my um, heroes and heroines of the music industry and be in the same room with them. Um, and as you said earlier when we were chatting, and established that we're all the same, we all have the same insecurities. And, you know, I think inherently artists tend to be have a propensity to be sensitive for people and um, maybe a bit insecure or needy, I don't know. I certainly, certainly saw those things in myself. Um, and so... There's a lot going on. There's a lot of layers um, going on in fame, mm. um, which I personally, I kind of slapped this smile on my face and discovered that people would kind of leave me alone a little bit because I looked very particularly happy and enjoying. And I was enjoying a large, huge, large part of it. But there was always something a little bit um, unnerving and... Um, I couldn't figure out what that was. I actually thought I have ticked the boxes and, you know, I'm in a position of success or what perhaps the world would call success. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not um, sensing uh, this balance I thought I'd have or this deep satisfaction. I don't know what. Just a whole that you know, music, which which really had become my idol. I worship music and I found solace in music and hope in music. But even there were times when I was just felt very lonely or um, just um, an inability to please people, I think. I think I became a people pleaser quite young in life um, and that just kind of <laughs> escalated it. Um, to a higher degree. We'll touch upon um, a, a lot about the, the fame side in the second half, but um, before we, we move into there, just a couple of last questions on, on nostalgia. Um, you were nominated for Brit Awards, won a Royal Variety Club Award, Smash Hits Awards. What's your fondest memory of the time and what are you most proud of? Um, okay, fondest memory. One of my fondest memories was doing my first tour ever. So much, oh gosh, I was going to say. So the band that, that was put together for me were 
amazing. I was so naive. I had no idea how to sing live for those long periods of times and dance and so on. And they, I had such a supportive band. Um, and we, the first tour we did was going to Northern Ireland. Nobody would go to Northern Ireland at the time. And, uh, but we did. And walking on that stage, actually backtracking, walking into the dressing room, there was a huge bouquet of flowers at the back of the room um, with a note on it saying, welcome to Ireland, so glad you're here, um, love you too. And that was really special, you know, because that was the native group welcoming me and I thought that was fabulous. Bono himself sent you these yeah. flowers. <laughs> well, I don't know, it's probably secretary. <laughs> but the thought was there. Um, that was special. And But then walking on that stage and hearing... Um, everyone singing your song with you is very, very special. Very, very special to think that you've influenced and touched lives with your music that way, that richly. And of course, The Only Way Is Up has been introduced to a new younger audience over the past decade, thanks to it being the theme to The Only Way Is Essex. Yeah. Um, what, what has that been like for you? Do you get free meals now when you go to Essex? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I wish. I mean, it's always a compliment. <laughs> sensitive here it's always got to be a compliment to to have your music um in anything that's that's lovely it's an honor to have that when when they put it on there I actually hadn't heard of the show at all because I was living here so I, I don't really get brick tv um and someone pointed that out to me and I was, I was genuinely excited but crikey uh, it sounded like me as well but it's not me is it not you singing? No, no. It's actually they got their, a, a singer in. On the latest series, they've kind of like remixed it and it's very clearly a different person singing. But even at the start, was it not you singing? No, no, not right at the start. They got very, very close, uh, identical kind of sounding voice, I think, because that that would cost them a lot of money to pay royalties every week. Can imagine. Mm. So unfortunately, um, in that sense, but I think you've always got to walk humbly, really, with with your songs and your music, even though sometimes it wouldn't have been my choice perhaps, but that wasn't my, that wasn't my call. That was a higher call that it should be on there. And that's fine. That's great. But I mean, now it's different. Now I am, now I own that a song. I can say like, you know, people write and ask for permission to put it in movies and things like that. I ask, well, what scene is it going to be? What, what's it about? And I can say no or yes. So that's nice to have a bit of control. Mm, cool. So it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. So there you are, uh, number one hit around the world for top 10 singles in a year, top three album, money in the bank, success. Um, but as you mentioned before, you weren't, Happy, and I think I read you said somewhere that you were smiling on the outside, but but drowning on the inside. Yeah, there were days I think um, when it it did feel like I, like I said, you know, it's it's the it's the enormity and the intensity um, of the attention that's placed and thrust upon you when you become famous um, that I found difficult to deal with because it's not a normal life in that sense anymore. Some people can really handle it. 
and some of us don't really handle it. Um, it's a beast, you know, fame is, it's like a drug. It's always hungry, it always wants more, it wants more attention. But then when you get it, you're never satisfied. You know, there's always um, that lack still that remains. And I think that I tried, you know, obviously to different ways to cope with fame. I became sort of obsessive about being in the gym or obsessive about health food or obsessive about this or that. Um, but it still um, presented to me, this is not who I am. I'm being defined by, by fame um, into somebody that I actually am not that person and I'm not sure who I am. Mm. I'm not really sure who I am. Um, and I needed that space to, to pull away. I had to pull away. Mm. You must have felt immense pressure too. You mentioned before, you know, in terms of when you get a number one single with your debut hit, you know, excuse the pun, but but the only way's down after that if you can't sustain it. So, you know, you, you're constantly kind of like running to try and keep up with it. Yeah, yeah. Sustaining your your chart position is very much a part of fame, um, and and very much a part of how you're driven in the music industry with the big labels, obviously. And I think. It, it overshadows your creativeness. That's it becomes a business, and and I think when for artists that's very difficult to deal with and cope with because being creative all the time is part of what you thrive in and how you exist um, and how you want to be reflected. Um, so that when that's crushed, it's 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 difficult. I think um, to do as with any job, I'm sure, be journalism or whatever it is and so I I began to just ask people some of my contemporaries you know how are you dealing with this I'm not really dealing with this very well how are you dealing with this and so you know that people were drinking a lot or obviously of substance abuses and more relationships and so on and uh, I just became very low and I became sick, I think, really. I just started to become sick. Unfortunately, went through a, a divorce, which was very difficult um, and public. Ah! Um, and I found that difficult, of course, and didn't help. And um, so I didn't want to sing. I just found my place. I didn't want to sing. I couldn't think of songs. And I felt record company was pulling away because it was connected um, in a relationship to me so because there was quite a big gap between your first and second albums I think like six years and I yeah, think there I mean, one reason was that's because you gave birth to your daughter Rio that's right um, but also as you mentioned you, you split up with your husband at the time and he and he was so inextricably linked to your career because he was your manager and owned yeah. the record label you assigned to so you had to go through that process of finding a new label pleasing those people mm -hmm. and I think there was an album that was shelved along the way somewhere so did that whole experience kind of leave you feeling even more disillusioned with the music industry and more aware of how much of a business it is oh definitely yes of course of course you are you you know you're emotionally roller coasting anyway in a, in divorce that that doesn't that isn't something that happens and then it's dealt with and it's gone overnight or in six weeks or a year you know you when you've invested your life and your love in in, in a relationship like that 
it demands time to be healed. And um, so that, yes, that was very difficult. And obviously developing a new relationship with the record company. And so, yeah, I think you, you laid it out really well, really. I just was ready to stop. Um, and unfortunately, I had a small operation that, which uh, went wrong and I hemorrhaged badly um, and was rushed back into the hospital and so on. And that kind of left me on, on very sick and in bed and, and reflective of, okay, what, what's going on? What's going on with my life? What am I doing here? Am I really, can I really justify going in the studio and making this next album when really I, I hate it? You know, it's not, it's not where I want to be. It's not how I want to be known. Um, and that, so it was, in one way it was bittersweet because it was in that time that I began to question things outside of myself and look for answers outside of myself and stop trying to fix everything and do everything in my own strength. And that was going to lead me to, you know, this, this wondrous place um, of faith. Um, so in a way, you know, suffering, there is always a message and there is always a new beginning in suffering, I think, whether it's finding out more about yourself um, or, or looking at things with a new perspective and, and making life-changing decisions. Um, as someone used to say to me, there's always a blessing in the storm if you look for it. And I guess that was what was happening for me at that time too. So you mentioned your contemporaries who were also not happy and they were they were turning to other things to fill the void in their lives where they, they weren't happy, whether that was drugs or alcohol or sex or shopping or, or anything to fill that hole. And for you, in the end, when you were searching for something to fill that void, you found your faith. I did. I did. I, I, it was a journey. I think uh, I was not a believer in anything particularly, but I did have a sense that there was something greater than my, myself and life because I'd become a mother. And that is a huge, generous helping of discovery of uh, what can happen in my months is beyond your imagination. You know, my daughter is just, she's just so wonderful. Um, and that made me sort of look at life differently. And then I began that journey in the music industry. They tend to, to um, lean into um, esoteric or the sort of Eastern religions because of kind of the Beatles and other kind of artists who went that way. So I did, I looked into, um, the faith of Buddhism, and I looked into um, some of my friends were um, Muslim, so I was I was invited to read some parts of the Quran. I picked up the Quran, and, and then I was sort of I suppose I was challenged by what would be being called the New Age movement, which was a sort of faith movement that was inclusive of everything and would be using. Um, sort of ancient religious um, things like crystals and cards and tarot cards and things like that to answer questions, big questions on life. Um, and I met amazing people, wonderful people, all um, on their, their faith journey. 
um, looking for truth. And for me, I found it was narrowing down the path of what were the big questions, you know, who am I? Why am I here? Is there more purpose in my life? Um, why was I created a woman? And, you know, what does motherhood look like? What about creation, evolution? These big, big philosophical questions. And um, I, I, it, I wasn't finding them in that particular religion or that particular religion, um, although they had many beautiful things. I was discovering that I was looking for the one qualified, I think, to answer those questions. And actually the one faith that I really didn't want to look into was Christianity. Um, I had a lot of preconceived ideas about the faith and I, I had no real coherent understanding of Jesus or his teachings at all to really warrant that. So, and the way I met Christ actually was I was very poorly one night in bed and I'd had some very dark thoughts. And I remember questioning life and asking uh, my mother, who was with me at the time, okay, I've looked at many things. Do we have a Bible in the house or anything? Surprisingly, she found one. And uh, I remember it being very quiet, very pretty dark, pretty heavy light, and just lying there opening this book and not knowing anything about it, not knowing anything about the author of the book at all. And reading a passage of scripture, which I cannot tell you what it was at all now, but I suspect it might have been in the Psalms, which is the ancient songs, beautiful, beautiful songs written about God. And just having this wonderful sense of peace which was for me physical, actually physically was overwhelmed with peace and a sense of rest, um, perhaps security could be the word. Um, and I can identify that now as um, being in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. But I didn't know that then, of course. Um, but I remember lying down putting the book down and just resting for the first time in weeks um, away from panic attacks and so on. And thinking, okay, I have to find out about this. I have to find out about who, who is this? Who is this God? And uh, going within a couple of weeks, attending a church, a local church, which was not at all what I hoped it was going to be, <laughs> unfortunately. It was um, pretty cold. It was a, a high church, they called them. Nobody really spoke to me, and I didn't have a sense of um, that presence that I would imagine um, I would have had anyway. But I came out of that church, and as I walked around the corner, I bumped into um, a hairdresser friend of mine who used to bleach my hair when I first started. <laughs> who did all that damage to your hair. <laughs> all that damage. Bonnie, amazing. And Bonnie, uh, so Bonnie was a, a girl who would have a good good time, good laugh, good night. You know, if you hang up with Bonnie, you, were, you know what kind of night you were going to be in for. And she's chatting and saying, what are you doing here? And I just remember looking at her thinking, she is different. 
she has a a sense of lightness, shall we say, about her that was different to the Bonnie I knew. I mean, Bonnie had a mouth like a sewer. She she'd be more <laughs> than happy for me to say she and she that kind of was gone and she was very just light and she invited me for coffee and I thought, yeah. And we chatted for ages and I just listened to her and I just eventually said, what's happened to you, Bonnie? You are very different. You are steady. You know, you're, there is a, an air of confidence, I don't know, of something about you that's different. And, um, and she said, well, yes, I mean, you know what? I've become a Christian and it has really transformed my life, you know, and I just nearly fell off the chair. I mean, it's just, it's just such a leveler. I said, really? Oh, okay. Um, I guess that's a part of what I needed and God knew that, that if I was going to have a relationship with, with a God, I would need to know that that was the way that you could enter into a relationship, that it was so personal, that it was transforming and made a difference. Um, and she invited me to her church and I said, willingly, willingly, I'd love to. And that began that journey to meeting God's people, uh, meeting the Bible and um, unearthing the, the, the teachings and the life of Christ from the, the first pages to the last, really, uh, which was amazing. Um, for me, because on many levels, I mean, I I couldn't understand first of all how this book was relating to my life personally in the twenty first century. The passages, the scriptures, the the testimonies of stories, they were definitely relating to my my circumstances. They, the wisdom, the rawness of stories, the real life stories, real life people with real life difficulties, um, and how God worked with them. And how Christ spoke into um, suffering and how he spoke into um, hope and how he spoke into uh, motherhood and parenting and all these things was just such a revelation, really. Um, And then eventually I joined um, a a group um, doing a course on Christianity. And that was brilliant because you could sit there with other like-minded people and just chat about, you know, well, what about this or what about that? Hey, I, I don't understand that. What's God think about that? And so I was just growing in relationship to meeting the person and the life of Christ, which was really just the person. And I was just full of admiration for um, the way he spoke about his kingdom and why he came and his mission. And then I met Christ as a divine person, um, which took a little while and began to see the miracles and the fulfillment of all his prophecies um, in this person. And eventually I made a commitment to follow Christ as I recognized my position and I began to understand sin and, you know, why I would repeat patterns of destructive behavior and, um, why the world was so corrupt and struggling and battling and broken, you know, um, understanding the the central principle of that man is created in God's image and has fallen away from that. Um, and therefore our hearts are predetermined to be 
selfish and harmful. And this extraordinary gift of love that God um, has sent and gave to us, um, and not out of anything we could do. There's no way we could work our way into the love of God. There's no way we could um, pay our way into the love of God. It was simply out of his desire and love um, to be in relation and redeemed to himself through Christ. That it just, it is a spiritual revelation that happens to the heart and the mind, I believe. Um, and there are many steps in everybody's journey to, to finding God through Christ is different. And that even itself is overwhelming to me because it shows the breadth and the depth of God um, in life. So let's talk about what you've done for the past 20 odd years, because your faith has really influenced it. And I can see, you know, just recounting your story of, of how you found your faith is you've got quite emotional talking about it so so you've released two gospel albums um but tell me more about your from fame to freedom concert events oh yeah so that was something that just happened organically really i think i become a christian and i guess the word got out and um i was <laughs> like that the word, word got out you got it did you get that <laughs> nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and I uh, I was just finishing a gospel album and uh, I was started to just get invitations to certain churches at first um, if I wanted to come and talk about finding my own faith journey and being an artist and a woman and a Christian and uh, I thought yeah, okay that sounds this is a new audience, you know, for an artist, that's always wonderful that you can get your music out there. So I did. And then, then that door kind of opened. So that it just kind of naturally happened. It's sort of like an interview with, an evening with, I guess. Mm. Um, I would talk about anecdotes about stories of being in the industry like we've been doing today and coupled it with um, tracks from the album and back to an interview and, just stories of the journey and what I was doing now. It was it was marvellous on so many levels. First, because I was going into arenas that I'd never been, like prison. <laughs> well, you also say you were, you were in a, a maximum security prison in Ireland. <laughs> Honestly, can you imagine? Oh, my gosh, look about the only ways out. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was, what am I doing here? But, you know, you're on a mission, I guess. And it was incredible. People were great. And you go in with, with a message of hope for people who are in hopeless and brokenness situations. And, yeah, schools. We did some schools. I went back to my old school who always told me you'd never do anything in life. You'll never do anything in life. You're a dreamer. <laughs> uh, so that was fun. I'll show you. <laughs> oh, that was interesting. Um, yeah, and that... Um, so that's one level of being able to choosing something in your life where you're able to bring um, a message of hope and some answers, hopefully, to people's questions, big questions. And then there's the reward of being a Christian artist, I think. There is a difference to singing scriptural words coupled with music. Um, 
there's layers to that that I'd never experienced before as a singer. Um, there's a there's a sacredness that comes to your music that I didn't know existed, and that sacredness is used by God, I believe, to open people's hearts and offer again this sense of value and dignity and respect to their person in finding out that they are partly created in the image of God and what that's what comes with that. Um, and the sacredness of being, you know, created a man or a woman. There's a divinity to that if you're a Christian. So there's many layers to um, singing gospel music to me, which I'd never experienced before um, in secular music, let's say. And it's compelling. It's absolutely compelling and inspiring, of course. Um, so, I, you know, I, I write and sing about everything, divorce, relationships, creation, and so on. But it's all undergirded with this person who understands everything and has purpose and meaning to everything in your life. There is nothing in your life um, that is of no value or an accident or a mistake. There is purpose in it, in God's sight. Um, and obviously the beginning is to make a connection with God through Christ. So, so you're bringing a music that has eternal consequences to me. And that's powerful. I read that you said that you were prepared to be ridiculed for being so passionate about your faith. Is that something you've experienced much? Um, initially, yes, definitely. Um, I was totally unprepared for it. But yes, I think it's very difficult. It's diff different in the UK as well. In America... Faith is a part of everything. Christian faith is a part, sadly, of politics as well as we're seeing, mm. um, which is shocking and, and I hate that. But so it's more accepted. You get you get Christian awards, you get gospel music awards, you get all the different awards. It's included in their society. In the UK, it's not. It's, it's, so I was crossing into new boundaries and quite shocked that they wouldn't play any music on the radio at all, which has any kind of Christian content. Um, so that was a bit of a leveler and a bit, bit scary. But um, again, God just was opening different doors and I was quite happy um, growing in that, you know, that he gives you assurances along the way um, by giving you, bringing you people just through messages. or And um, I was growing in confidence in my faith in Christ. Um, that this is what he wanted me to do. Oh, every Christian has to do that. I mean, loads of Christians, you know, just become, you know, you have to go and do gospel music at all. No, not at all. So it's just the way that I, I was um, led, I think. But I was disappointed in some of our society's attitudes towards Christians, um, certainly media <laughs> as well, um, unhealthily so. Um, but that spares me on, you know, even more to say, Perhaps you've got preconceived ideas about it like I did. So have a listen to this and tell me what you think. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> With your um, uh, gospel music that you've released and saying that, you know, you're, this is the type of music you're writing now, do you think you'd ever release secular music again? And what music are you currently enjoying? Um, well, I am enjoying writing gospel music 
for the reasons I've kind of talked about before, I have no idea if I would go back to secular music. I have been in the studio doing a version of The Only Way Is Up, for me personally, that was inspired by um, when I started working at the school, I met, um, I began working with a lot of students and I met a producer who was doing a particular film documentary series um, about World War II and the hurricane playing. Mm. And he approached me if I would do the music for the, the soundtrack for the series. And I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then we talked about these great students, these great voices that I had, and we decided to involve them and get them to write from their perspective a song about war and loss and all those different things that were part of the series. And he asked me eventually if I would be interested in doing a version of The Only Way Is Up for that. And I thought long and hard about that, and I said, not really, because, you know, that song is, it is what it is. And if you mess with it, I could just be a disaster for, for, for many memories, for my memories, for this, that, and the other. Mm. But anyway, I was in the studio anyway, recording it in my downtime. I just thought, let's, let's have a bash. Really slowed it down, like a really slow, um, haunting um, version. And it sounds okay at the moment. I'm not sure if it will come out, but it's sounding really okay. Of course, I'm very protective about it. So. Yeah, it's your baby. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I'll, I'll put it out, but I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe. Um, so, so what music are you currently enjoying? Talking about layering, there's two things I'm really into at the moment. One is a particular artist that was introduced to me recently. The Harriet Fraser has got this beautiful, haunting pure sounding voice which she's layering in her style and um i was introduced to this album her album's called peace and it's just it just washes over you and it really does give you peace again it's coupling the ancient scriptures beautiful um language of the psalms and the narratives of, of their messages and it's so beautiful so i am listening to her at the moment Bearing in mind, all day I'm working with kids, so I'm listening to everything pop and contemporary and <laughs> as well. Um, so I'm really into that. And the other thing I'm really into is actually there's an artist. I'm, I'm just hoping one day he'll make music, but he's actually a painter. He's Japanese. And his name is um, Mako, Mako Fujirama. And his, his, to me, his art is music. Do you know what I mean? It gives voice to music in my heart when I look at his paintings. Um, so he does very big pieces in oils, and but he works with this ancient method that he's been inspired with from Japan, where they it's called kutsuji, kintsuji, and it's where they would take the, the the porcelain broken pieces, normally teacups. And they'd fit them together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You heard of that with this beautiful gold, sort of gold thread or oil. And, and, the, and so the method was that they can take something that's broken and they make something even more beautiful. Um, and he's also a, a Christian artist. And he, he, so it's layered. It's very layered, his work. He, he will paint in 
bold colour. And then now he'll work this sort of oil gold thread in into the wash and then he'll paint on that and then he repeats. So it's very layered. And he compels you to sit and look at his work because you have to have the time to see this gold thread coming through, mm. you know. And obviously on a broader three theme, it's intricately connected, you know, to life um, as a follower of Christ. You know, there's these layers and the threads of gold are constantly washing and, and going through your life as you, as you get growing relationship to him. You mentioned there that you uh, you teach now as well. You're a vocal yeah. coach at a school in Spain. Do you believe that everyone can sing or can be taught to sing? Because my husband, he cannot sing at all. <laughs> he can't even whistle in tune. Um, so you'd have your work cut out with him. <laughs> there's, there's the line. There's the line. In tune. Everybody can sing. Of course they can. <laughs> Just not necessarily a tune. <laughs> that's the key. That's 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 my job. That's what I love to try and do. Yeah, obviously some people have, they're not audio, so they can't hear notes. They just aren't audio. That They would be termed toe deaf. Um, so they could sing though. They could make noise and follow, you know, follow something I sing to them, but they perhaps wouldn't sing back exactly what I would just like to <laughs> Like, is that your husband? I don't know. But on the other hand, um, the voice is, is an interesting thing. Most people that I've worked with, adult and young students, are amazed at what, what can happen to their voice mm. after only a few classes. So I think it's worth, if you want to sing and you want to find out, I think it's worth having classes and having a go because when I watch my students hit a note and hold it and breathe and sing right through that note. And there's this tone that only belongs to them. Um, and they are, they just saw, you know, and you see their wings come out. You know what I mean? It's so rewarding and, and medicinal in many, many soulful areas too. You know, singing is, is, uh, is brilliant. <laughs> My uh, final question, um, regular listeners of the podcast will know that I am a bit of a crazy cat lady, uh, so I can't resist asking this question. Uh, please tell me about your psychic cats, Tamla and Motown. Oh, oh my psychic cats. Well, they're not with us anymore, <laughs> sadly. That was a long time ago. My latest cat, um, I don't think she's psychic, Imana. Um, so Imana is... 16, 17 years old, we're not sure. Um, I bought for my daughter when we came to Spain. And Mana is amazing. Actually, she I didn't buy her. I bought another cat, Tiger. We've had so many. I love cats. I'm with you all the way. Um, <laughs> so Mana found us. Mana was one of those who found us. Cats do that. They find where they want to stay. And she was pregnant too. So she came with a family. Um, and she's amazing. We love her to pieces. But Tamla and Motown were psychic, though, weren't they? Oh, no. Who said that? <laughs> you did. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm quoting a Smash Hits interview from, from oh, circa 1989. really? Did I? <laughs> I may have been a little bit high on my my fame at that moment. You were, you were high off winning your Smash Hits award at the time. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Please forgive me. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's been so lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much. Oh, how lovely. It's lovely to meet you and all your listeners. All the best. 
Thanks so much again to Yaz for chatting with me and sharing her story. You can find out more about her gospel albums, This Is Love and Running Back To You, on her website, yazmusic.co.uk, and also find her on Instagram and Facebook at Yaz Official. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, visit the shop at celebritycatchup.com or the support page where you can donate the cost of a coffee or whatever you'd like, which will help keep it free of charge. And please don't keep the podcast to yourself. Do share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>